0: How's it going, folks? Welcome to Found Flicks. On this Indie Explained, we're looking at the latest from Ari Aster, Bo Is Afraid, where, following the sudden death of his mother, a mild-mannered but anxiety-ridden man confronts his darkest fears as he embarks on an epic Kafkaesque journey back home. Ari Aster is, of course, well-known for his two previous films, Hereditary and Midsommar. There are some elements that do feel familiar between the two, but with Bo Is Afraid, Aster did something completely different and unexpected. Perhaps it was too weird and experimental, because the movie was divisive critically and also a box office bomb. However, for me, whether you love it or hate it, it is a movie that warrants discussion. To me, that makes it a success. Even at a whopping three hours, it's never boring, and that's impressive in its own right. Now, with this kind of movie, there is so much to look at and analyze, because every frame and every scene is chock full of relevance and details, meaning I really got my work cut out for me with this one. It's also very open to interpretation, There's no definitive answers here, so I'll be focusing on my own personal interpretation of what happens. So warm yourself up a Bountiful Pastures Microwave Dinner, and let's check out Bo's Afraid, breaking down Bo's insane journey, the important themes explored, and explaining the ending and what it all means. Even before the movie starts, there is an odd logo amongst the standard studio fanfare, MW, as in Mona Wasserman, Bo's mom. Her MW company, along with Mona, is quite a ubiquitous presence in the the story and almost implies that they even had a hand in the making of the movie itself. Our epic journey begins appropriately enough with Bo's birth. He's surrounded by darkness and a small light calls for him. As soon as he's delivered, we hear his mom freaking about him possibly being dropped on his head. We can't quite make out visually what's happening. So we don't know if this actually did happen or not. Regardless, there is a ton of head trauma ahead for Bo and this could have started all the way from his birth. Maybe it was messed up since then, who knows? The doctor denies any wrongdoing even as Mona gets more upset. He's not crying, you're supposed to be crying, she shrieks. The dog smacks his bare bottom and baby Bo starts to cry. We pick up many decades later and Bo has become a frazzled bundle of nerves and anxiety, worried about literally everything in his world. He brings up concern to his therapist about accidentally drinking some mouthwash. Could he get stomach cancer? The therapist knows that one time won't do anything, but this already illustrates just how much fear Bo lives with at all times. Perhaps the biggest source of fear and guilt is his mother. She calls him, which he screens, and learns he is going to visit her for the anniversary of his father's death. Bo sighs that he had that dream again, seeing a flash of him as a child being forced into the tub by his mother. This dream will become of great importance as we fill in more details. The therapist inquires how he's feeling about heading home. Bo says, good, it's been a while, but it's only been a few months really. The therapist is curious if he feels guilty about that. Bo doesn't answer, but the doc concludes that he he must. Guilt, especially regarding his relationship with his mother, is probably the biggest source of problems for Bo. The doc is curious if he has any kind of plans or expectations regarding his visit. Bo doesn't really answer, and suggesting their relationship is quite toxic, ask Bo if he went to a well that made him sick, would he go back to the same one expecting it to be safe? Bo contemplates this idea, twiddling his thumbs and emitting a gentle hmm. Since his current anxiety meds aren't cutting it, the doc gives him a script for a new cool drug that should be smoother on all fronts. Produced by his mom's company, he hands over the script telling Bo to break a leg, a phrase typically reserved for those about to take the stage. Wonder why that might be. He takes his new meds and listens to a gushing voicemail from his mom. I'm so excited to see you, my little angel. As we get our first real glimpse of the outside world, things feel more than a little off. He passes through a street market, which oddly also sells guns, seeing a kid playing with a rifle. Amongst the many strange billboards, there is one for the MW company and their dental floss, a subtle hint at just how much of a presence Mona has in his life. There's a kid there playing with a boat and a fountain. His mom angrily pulls him away and he hits the boat, capsizing it. Mm, the foreshadowing there. We experience just how callous and disconnected the public has become when a man is on a roof contemplating jumping. Rather than a system, the audience eggs him on to jump and films the whole thing with no consideration whatsoever. Bo's neighborhood is a straight up urban nightmare filled with a bunch of seedy looking characters and just straight up violence going on in the streets. At a soup truck managed by a family that become important in a little bit, one tattooed man takes his bowl and complains that it's too hot. From the other side of the street, Bo runs up in a full sprint. He rushes towards his apartment, getting the door closed just before the tatted man catches him. Well, that's scary. On his apartment door, there's warning of a brown recluse loose in the building. And of course, it's scampering around Bo's pad. He microwaves a hearty, bountiful pastor's meal, another problem from his mother's company. He says hi to a picture of his dad, which is oddly double exposed, making his face impossible to make out. On the news, there's a concerning story regarding a crazed attacker in the area known as the birthday boy Stab Man, who has racked up a total of 28 attacks so far. Bo takes a statue out that he bought for his mother, the statue itself a symbol of motherhood, and writes a little note on the bottom. The pen dries out, and when searching for another, he comes across a picture of a girl, Elaine. This really gets Bo thinking, hearing distant ocean sounds Spilling from his memories. He gets tucked into bed and does his best to drown out the constant arguing and sirens blaring outside. Even though he was asleep, a neighbor strangely slips a note under the door asking him to turn the music down. There's no music! As the night drags on, more and more notes are left, growing more aggressive. Suddenly, a neighbor proclaims that it's time to dance and cranks up some hard techno, loud enough to rattle the walls. Bo sticks his fingers in his ears and loses track of time. He wakes up running late for his flight and hurries to get packed. We get a glimpse at Bose airline ticket, which I earmarked because I was curious to see where the story supposedly took place. To my surprise, he's located in Karina Karina, referencing the 1994 film starring Whoopi Goldberg and Ray Liotta. There is some similarity, too, between the plots, dealing with a man struggling to move on after the death of his wife. Also funny, what's the airline? Why Air Liotta, of course. What a weird detail to include. Aster has a strange sense of humor. On the way out the door, he forgets his floss and Runs back to retrieve it. In the literal seconds that he was gone, both his keys and his luggage have vanished. He asks the maintenance guy about it, and he's no help, only chuckling, You're fucked, pal. He first calls his landlord, but she thinks that he's a solicitor and hangs up. That means he has to call his mom to explain what happened. And she oddly doesn't seem to believe him, turning cold after saying he won't be able to make the flight. She proceeds to guilt trip him, moaning that she can come to visit him next time, so it's not such a pain. He assures her it's not a pain, it's never a pain. She goes quiet again, before saying that he'll do the right thing. He doesn't know what that means, asking, well, what does that mean for you? He is still adamant that they can fix this somehow, but Mom coldly hangs up on him. Illustrating how much impact his mom has on him, as soon as the call ends, the cacophony of outside noises rise to blaring levels, his anxiety completely taking over. He stares at the deadbolt and imagines someone kicking it right open. This really dials us into Bo's psyche and his overwhelming anxiety. He suddenly has this very real, to him, fear of someone breaking in. However, Bo has no control over these feelings, and to him this reality is 100% possible. This again clues us into the whole incarnation of the world we're seeing. We're experiencing everything from Bo's anxiety-ridden POV, where everything you imagine can go wrong does go wrong. He takes more of his medication, but it's fresh out of water, the bottle adamant to Always take it with H2O. Of course, the water is out in his apartment and he tries to make himself throw up the pill. Peering out the window, there's a convenience store just across the street with a big old pallet of water. It might not be worth the risk though, seeing chaos outside, including a dude poking another dude's eyes out. A search into the drug's side effects brings up an article about someone that actually died from not taking the required water, inspiring him to venture into the outside world. He cautiously approaches the front door barrier that protects him from outside. He grabs a phone book and sticks it in place jam the door open. He psychs himself up and makes a frantic run through the streets. It's almost like a war zone of activity until he makes it to the store. He quickly guzzles a bottle of water, but has more issues when his credit card gets declined. He fishes through his pockets for cash, watching as his biggest fear unfolds right before his eyes. The street people start making their way into his building right through that open door. By the time he gets to change together, pretty much the entire neighborhood has broken the barrier into his building. He gets back just in time for the door to be closed right in his Face, trapping him in the streets. A long-haired dude ominously stares at him as the crowd descends deeper inside. You can guess where they're going as they head right into his apartment to his horror. He scans the now-empty streets and stays frozen in terror. Time kind of skips, which does happen a lot to him, and he's still standing there hours later. He climbs on some scaffolding to get some sleep and also gets a view of the madness unfolding in his apartment. Time skips to the morning, and he's awoken to a construction worker drilling away and completely unfazed by him being there. It looks like all the people have left, but his place looks absolutely trashed. Luckily, in a sense, the front door is completely smashed now, allowing him to get inside, also implying that his one safe zone has now been completely disrupted. He looks down the hall, spotting what sure looks like a dead body outside his door. It's a tattooed guy who was chasing him earlier with a big bite in his neck, seeing that he was about to dial 911. Bo takes a deep breath, snatching his phone back and surveys the damage. His place has been more or less destroyed, something even smoldering in his bed, seeing that it appears empty, he pushes the dude's body out of the way and quickly locks the door. The water has come back on and so he draws a bath and attempts to book another flight, but his credit card is still declined. He calls his mom again and is confused when a UPS driver answers. It takes some time to spell out what's going on, but it sounds like Mona was killed when a chandelier fell on her head. It's like it evaporated, the driver describes. He only came in because dogs in the area were going nuts, there was a weird smell in the house and the front door was wide open. They both hope it's just a misunderstanding It can't really be his mom, right? But when he calls back, and after finding her wallet, it's definitely Mona. Bo is stoic, but clearly beside himself at the news, dropping the phone. He stands in the same spot for hours again, losing time once more. By then, the bathtub has overflowed into the living room, and he stops the faucet. There is an important theme of water in the story, and Bo decides to hop in the bath, clutching his phone and the statue for his mom. He notices an old photo of him and his mother, and starts getting upset. Weirdly, there's droplets of water falling from the ceiling, and bizarrely, there's a man straddling himself up there. The guy sobs, starting to lose his traction. The brown recluse crawls out on his face, and he plummets right down in the tub. The two tussle in the water in a big bundle of naked confusion. Bo gets free and runs outside completely billy bollocks. He comes face to face with the birthday boy stabber who has just claimed his latest victim. He runs over to an officer for help, but he thinks that the statue is a weapon for some reason, demanding Bo drop it. He keeps freaking, screaming for Bo to freeze. He doesn't want to do this. A confused Bo makes a for it and the stabber runs after him. Out of nowhere, a truck crashes right into him, sending him flying through the air. This feels like a literal representation for the big news of his mom passing. He's literally been hit by a truck. There's sounds of water and he's back at the tub memory. His mom starts screeching angrily at him and the memory twinkles away. He comes to in a teenage girl's bedroom and meets his saviors as well as the people responsible for his accident, Grace and her husband Roger, AKA the people running the soup truck. He not only got hit, but afterwards the stabber got him good in the tummy and his hands. Man, that's bad luck. He notices what looks like an ankle monitor and Grace excuses that it's for monitoring his health. Yeah, sure it is. Bo starts breaking down. Was that a dream? Is his mommy really dead? Grace coos that it must have been a dream and Bo squeals in anguish for his mom. The family has their own issues and trauma, the most prevalent being their son Nathan who died in combat. There's a shrine to him and everything. Rods chuckles that it's time for dessert already, doling out handfuls of pills to his wife and the big man Bo something else of concern he found when looking him over. His testicles are severely distended and suggests getting an ultrasound. We'll find out more about that later. Their quite tense daughter, Tony, comes home and meets Bo, him giving a weak little wave. Hello! She's combative, asking how he's liking her room. Bo defends that he didn't know, and Roger steps in, saying she's more than happy to let him use it. Tony grumbles that she's going to school, even though it's Saturday. She grabs some bottles of pills on the way out, and her dad warns her casually not to mix those. Definitely weird. It's like they don't even care about her at all. They are too obsessed with Nathan's memory. Grace helps him outside to make a phone call, and he meets the severely PTSD-ridden army buddy of Nathan's, Jeeves, who lives in a trailer outside. He freaks out, sending the couple to fetch his medications. Bo calls his mother's attorney, who he mistakes as a doctor for some reason. He fills him in that his mom is indeed dead, and they have postponed her burial to an outrageous degree. It was Mona's wish that Bo be here, and with each passing day that he's not, the humiliation grows stronger. He defends That he was grievously injured and everything, and Cohen isn't interested. You need to get here ASAP with a suit and eulogy. That is all that's being asked of him. He's now even more adamant about getting home, but Roger tells him that he can't fly in his condition. He does promise that they'll figure out how to get him there, and it should be no more than a couple of days. Grace offers that they can go tomorrow. Why not today? Bo asks. He gets emotional, and Grace takes him in her arms while Tony films the whole thing on her phone, choking down even more pills. Yo, quite tellingly, the whole family hangs out minus. Tony, really feeling like they are treating Bo like part of their family more than her even at this point, an obvious replacement for her dead son. In an interesting kind of metaphor for Bo's character, they are working on a puzzle of Nathan, and he has the box in his lap. In the puzzle of his life, he has all the pieces in his possession. The problem is he doesn't know how to properly utilize them. Also interesting is a strange headline in a paper Rogers is reading regarding celebrities wanting to be buried face down. This was quite common in the Middle Ages and was reserved for those considered outcasts criminals, or seen as cursed. He heads to bed and finds monogram PJs along with a note from Grace there, again, obviously using him as a replacement for the hole in their family. He comes out later to Tony on the couch and apologizes. He was just going to the bathroom. He tells her that he's happy to trade the couch for her room, he's leaving tomorrow anyway. Tony refuses and he says sorry awkwardly a ton of times and thanks her before returning to the room. Not even getting to use the toilet because he's so eager to not upset her. It's a bit ridiculous. Through the window, he sees Tony stomp over to Deep's van, banging on the door most likely in search of more pills, which she really needs. There's another time blip to the morning and Tony is freaking out over him using her toothbrush. Her parents are unfazed and Raj asks how he's feeling about the big day. Bo isn't too sure. He feels that he won't know until he actually gets to her house. But his travel plans are thwarted when Raj is called in for emergency surgery and Grace has some big meeting that she can't miss. So Raj puts it on him to decide, is tomorrow okay? As Bo cannot stand up for himself in any capacity whatsoever he clams up, meaning he won't be leaving today after all. Really making it clear about the Nathan replacement thing, Grace hands Bo a big mug with an N inscribed on it. Don't forget to hydrate, she tells him cheerfully on the way out the door. He finds a strange note under the mug, reading stop incriminating yourself. Whatever that means, he chases after them, wanting to know its meaning, but they're already gone. He calls Cohen again and spots an odd man lingering in the backyard. With some time on his hands, he goes online to confirm his mother's fate. He finds a news video on the subject where she is described as an industry Titan. also including an interview with the UPS driver, Bill Hader, in a stealthy cameo. What really impacts Bo, though, is when they talk to another woman, Elaine. Could it be that same girl grown up from the picture? The sight of her triggers something in Bo, causing him to puke all over the computer. Tony enters in a rage. What is wrong with him anyway? He promises to clean it up, and she tells him to come along. She's taking him home. He's confused. What about Roger? And she shouts at him, who do you think told me to take you? He hops into a minivan with her friend, who starts immediately filming him on her phone. Tony scoffs, aren't you a little old to be adopted? I'm not adopted, Bo responds in confusion. Yeah, you are, she chuckles. She offers him a mystery joint and insists that he smoke it. If not, she'll get her friend to rip out her hair and blame it on him. Major yikes. He finds he is unable to escape and has no choice but to take a toke. He at least wants to know what's inside of it and she only admits that it contains three things. Yeah, what three things I wonder? It must be pretty potent stuff as Bo starts to quickly lose himself to the drugs, going into a full on glassy-eyed appearance. Can you die from this? He groans and starts to really freak out and cry. Jeez, dude's losing his shit. The girls laugh at him, which all turns strange and echoey before fading away. He looks out the window, seeing their back at the house. He attempts to get the girl's attention, oddly hearing seagull squawking. He looks back in the window, now seeing adult Elaine in the reflection. This flashes him back to another water-based memory when on a cruise vacation with his mom, where Bo and Elaine had a brief fling. They both notice her with her mother, and Mona smiles. Look, you're not the only kid here. They have an odd encounter later when he hears her in the halls knocking on every door announcing that there's a body in the pool. He waits for her to show up to his door and they go to check out the body together facing down in the pool. Someone fishes the body out and Elaine asks him to take a picture, the same one from his drawer. They see her again later and Mona gives him some strange advice. Only women know women, she states. That's the truth. While men are blind. She says it's not a criticism. In fact, that's their charm. In order for him to bag someone that confident, he would have to match. implying that he can't, but she smiles that she should be so lucky to have Beau. In fact, any woman would be lucky to have him. He's just gotta commit completely. He's suddenly back in the house and it seems he is still tripping balls. His mind drifts back to the boat and mom debates turning in early. Unless he wants her to stay up, they could go stargazing. Beau stays mom and she elects to go to bed. Here we see some surprising behavior from Beau as he sneaks out of the room to meet up with Elaine and do some stargazing of their own. At the buffet, we see that even In his younger age, Bo is already riddled with fears and anxieties. As they pass by each of the foodstuffs, he comments on the potential danger hidden within, like hiding razor blades in eclairs. She rapid fires personal questions about him, learning that she hates her mom and that they are both virgins, not too much of a surprise there. But in Bo's case, he pipes up that he has to be a virgin due to something genetic, and this is what actually killed his father. She rolls her eyes and informs him they're allowed to kiss, and starts loudly, quickly counting down from 10. He finally makes a move, and true to his nature, apologizes. She returns a smooch, and her mom shows up to drag her away. Later, she bursts into their room, screeching that her mom is taking her off the boat. She wants him to wait for her, and oddly says that she loves him before giving him a big kiss. Mona is baffled, along with me, by what's going on here, and Elaine's mom whisks her away. Mona's shouting after, was she the one? This moment must be, at the very least, a romanticized version of his memory, if it even happened at all. They only hung out for a few hours, maybe. No way it was this great love story as is being presented here. Back of the house, Tony has unleashed Jeeves upon Bo, trying to attack him with a back full of needles. Raj dopes him up even more, promising that it's all under control. And Raj knows that he'll be ashamed of his behavior in the morning. With Grace, it seems that she has something to tell him, but Raj interrupts. She whispers to him to tune to channel 78 and hands him a remote. He clicks to the number, and it's a live view of the room he is currently in. Bo is befuddled and waves to his tiny self on the screen. He tries rewinding, and it goes back several minutes earlier to when he was with Grace. Why not try fast forwarding as well? He sees Tony enter and then picks up the speed glimpsing several moments that haven't happened yet. Just as in the footage, Tony enters looking more frazzled than ever. She's convinced herself that Bo is here to replace Nathan, so it's time to paint the walls in his new room. She haphazardly writes his name on the walls while Bo sheepishly tries to get her to stop, knowing how important this room is to Grace. Tony continues flipping her lid, demanding that he get messed up with her. When he refuses, she yells that he has already failed his stupid test. Wait a minute, test? Everyone pretending that he's some that old orphan makes her want to puke. Bo pleads that he'll do whatever she wants, just let him leave. She goes even nuttier, encouraging him to drink some paint. If he doesn't, she threatens him with more video evidence of what he did. What did I do? Bo wonders. She calls him a puss and helps herself to a healthy heaping of the paint. In another room, Grace hears Bo sobbing and finds him holding Tony covered in paint. She accuses him of being responsible, him defending he didn't do anything. He tried to stop her. And the normally warm Grace turns on a dime. She scowls, I see You now replacing my son with a demon? With a demon, she shrieks, repeatedly slamming him into the wall. She intends on killing him, going for her son's sword on display. With quick thinking, Bo leaps right through the glass door, running for his life, muttering, this is bad, this is bad. Grace growls for Jeeves to tear him apart, and he flees into the woods. Not paying attention, he bonks right into a tree, knocking him unconscious. More head trauma for this guy. Now word from this week's sponsor, Hello Fresh, America's number one meal kit. The new year is a great time start fresh and if you're looking to save money eat better or stress less HelloFresh is here to help their meal kits feature fresh ingredients and chef-crafted recipes delivered right to your door that's right no need to go to the grocery store and it saves you money leave all the meal planning and shopping to HelloFresh so all you got to do is get cooking I just ordered a box for myself and I can't wait to see what I get to cook even better there's no chance of getting bored as HelloFresh has more options than ever there's over 45 weekly dinner options and even more more market add-on items available. Also right now they have a special offer where you can get free breakfast for life. That means you get a free breakfast item with every HelloFresh delivery. So go to HelloFresh.com slash ending free and use code ending free for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash ending free with code ending free. He comes to later and wanders in the woods for hours. Every cricket chirp and snapping twig putting him on edge. He randomly encounters a pregnant lady, Penelope, who takes him to her weird hippie wandering theater troop camp. There's also that odd man seen in Grace's backyard who starts following after. He meets several of the other group members and learns that they are all orphans as well. The orphans of the forest, they're called, though some of their parents simply abandoned them rather than dying. A cue goes off, and it's time for the troop to strut their stuff. Another guy asks Bo if he'd like to join in, offering him a choice of wardrobe. As he says, They like to blur the line between the audience and the play. Elsewhere, Jeeves, now with a shaved head, is running purposefully, with Grace's words to tear him apart echoing in his head. He follows after a signal from that foot monitor. See, it told you. Target acquired. It beeps, meaning that he's not too far behind. The show is about to begin, confusingly soundtracked by Vanessa Carlton. There's several very odd needle drops in this movie. It almost feels like Aster is using several of these as a joke. Now, this sequence is most likely the biggest left turn of the movie, taking things into an entirely different direction than anything up to this point. Essentially it is just like the dude said, about blurring the lines between actor and audience. As we see, the play is a kind of take on Bo's own life and if he were to take a different path. The hero on stage has also lost both of his parents and grieves for them for many seasons. Eventually an angel appears and tells him he's properly grieved now. His parents were honored and can rest in peace. She then sends him to go forth and he must decide to stay with his life or move on. He elects to move on but finds himself bound with chains. He cuts himself loose and the hero has morphed into Bo. It really almost feels like a kind of hallucinatory thing going on here. There's this weird warbling device a butterfly dude activates at the start of the show and most of the audience looks kind of zombified. The point is this play incarnation of hero Bo is what his life could be if he could just get past his own issues. He walks for many many miles and until he happens upon a village that strikes his fancy. He goes on to learn a trade and learns the pleasures of tasting fruit and bread that is yours because you have earned it. He settles onto a plot of land and builds himself a house with his very own hands. He cultivates the earth, leading to a massive growth of crops. He lives off the land and amongst the mini cartoon characters climbing in the window, there's a cheerleader girl in a white mask that snaps a picture and winks and leaves. Tony's friend, I guess. What's she doing here? Then he meets a woman who becomes his soul and the gifts of his life will then multiply. The angel narrator also weirdly adds that sometimes his wife will look like a man to him? She gets pregnant and they have three healthy baby boys who grow into young men blessed with courage, kindness, and ambition. Everything Bo doesn't have. Then it all gets literally swept away in a historic storm. His home is destroyed and he is separated from his family. Afterwards, he sets out in search of them, looking endlessly but never finds his family. He attempts to get work and a plague ridden village, but they don't speak his language. One of the villagers even blames Bo for his house catching on fire as well as mutilating his kids, as we gotten used to at this point being blamed for things he couldn't have possibly done. He argues that he is innocent, which makes the villagers only believe him less. He gets locked up, and even after a while, he begins to question his own innocence. He is able to escape when warming his chains on the raging fires outside. The villagers send an attack dog to track him down. As the angel says, he won't know, but he will sense it. Hmm, kind of like Jeeves, honestly. He starts recording his adventures into a log that over the years becomes many logs He spends several years in the wilderness and has become one with nature. Abandoning all comforts has conditioned his mind to a new way of seeing. He eventually grows old and stops on a mountain range, and after all this time, he wonders if his family ever existed in the first place, seeing them in a mirage in the water. In the water! He reaches a point where he can't travel any further, and Bo begins to cry. The angel asks why he's crying. Well, because he's for his family until the end of his life and he's still alone. She tells him that he shouldn't be crying for his misfortunes but for his sins. She reveals to him that his family has been looking for him as well but he was so caught up in himself that no one could find him. She again tells him to confess and Bo doesn't understand exactly what he did. You know, she replies cryptically, confess. In a big moment of self-reflection, he admits that he's been a coward his whole life through tears. He then finds himself back into the normal woods, trumpet sound, and he awakes as if by miracle at the foot of his original village, still in cardboard form in the real world. The narrator continues that even though no one will recognize him, the town itself does seem to remember him. He happens across a play, and despite being hungry, spends his one last dollar on a ticket to my beautiful sweet boys. Reality collapses in on itself as the the play on stage continues his tale, with his wife reading Bo's story to his boys. She even makes reference specifically to not long after he took a seat, he saw the details of the plot are eerily similar to his own life. Bo rises to his feet, proclaiming, this is me! This is my story! The boys come down to join him, and they have an emotional reunion. My sweet boys! Bo cries. As for their mother, she was lost for good in the flood. The boys saying that they were raised as orphans. Sensing a trend here, they're curious if they have any other family, and Bo mumbles that they had a grandmother saying her head before trailing off. What about their grandfather? And Bo is brought back to another crucial memory. Young Mona explains to him that his dad, Harry, died on their very wedding night and the moment in which he was conceived. It happened at the moment of completion. He had a heart murmur just like Bo does, learning that his grandpa and great-grandpa died the same way. Harry thought that he was different, and Mona does feel guilty as she egged him on, wanting a child of her own. However, even in spite of all the trauma that harmed her so, it also resulted in the greatest gift of her life in Bo. The boys are like, uh, can that really happen? Yes, he nods, and that's why he's never been with anyone. They're confused, then uh, how did he have them in the first place? This paradox snaps him out of the dream reality, back to why watching the play with Penelope. He's suddenly not feeling well, which he isn't surprised by, and offers him some kind of concoction that she says helps her. In gratitude for all of her kindness, he gifts her the statue originally intended for his mother. He then turns back, noticing that strange man is sitting nearby. They exchange some stilted back and forth, and the man reveals that his father is alive. He says that he knew him after Bo was born. He and his wife used to work for Mona and would act as caretakers for his father, as his parents were both in debt to Mona. Who are you, he asked. eh, it doesn't matter, he shrugs. He starts to leave, and Bo becomes convinced this man could actually be his father. The beeping sound on his monitor gets more rapid, and the hero on stage calls out to the fair stranger before him. A knife is launched, going right into his chest. The hero Bo is gone for good. Penelope runs off, and the strange man yells for him. Dad, he shouts back, and out of nowhere, he explodes in a burst of blood and dust. Jeeves storms onto the scene, opening fire on the camp with a machine gun. Bo runs off into the woods, the bullets ricocheting off of trees all around him. The pirate guy manages to wing him with a guitar, causing Jeeves to tumble, and the gun keeps firing, blowing him to bits. He still manages to hit the incapacitate button on his controller, taking Bo down again with a small spark. We're then back to the bathtub scene with a bit more context and a different POV. Young Bo sees his reflection in the water. Interestingly, it's actually young Elaine there dumping a bucket of water on his head. Though as she leaves, she is replaced by young Mona, also seeing a second Bo there. He acts quite uncharacteristic for the child, defiantly asking his mother where his daddy is. She gets frustrated. You know where he is. He's dead. Are you trying to hurt me? She asks the boy. I don't care. I want daddy, he screeches. She looks over to the other bow still in the tub. Do you want your daddy too? He shakes his head feverishly. No. She grabs the braver bow and yanks him away. The other bow gets out of the tub following after and it's now older Mona instead. She opens the attic door. Up you go, she commands. She asks the other bow, you want to go up too, bud? No, he replies in older Bo's voice. The boy climbs up and she shuts him up in the attic. Mona says she's done with him. That's it, we don't talk about you anymore. She then turns her ire on the other bow, shouting for him to get back in the tub and the water takes over. This feels like an important scene for Bo at his core. The tub dream, or perhaps memory, seems to represent when he changed. The other Bo has effectively been locked in his mental attic and there it has stayed his whole life, leaving the scared one in his place. Older Bo makes his way out to the road and manages to hitch a ride. He's finally made it to Wasserton after all this time. And I'm like, wait a minute, Wasserton? Wasserman? What's the connection there, if any at all? They roll up to his mother's fancy digs, and it looks like they are already breaking down from an event. He asks an employee, and yep, the funeral has already happened. They could not wait any longer for him to show up. As he approaches the house, there's a strikingly huge statue out front depicting a woman lovingly clutching her baby. Well, that certainly illuminates how Mona sees herself. He Listens to the eulogy on tape, boasting of creating a super business beyond her wildest dreams. There's mention of Beau, who they say elected not to be here today. I guess her death is significant enough that a plaque has already been mounted at the spot where the chandelier crashed. There's also marked graves for each member of the family, one undated and waiting for Beau. Hmm, pretty morbid. He looks down the landing, seeing her headless body in the coffin. Come on, there's no way they do an open casket for a lady with no head. The pastor concludes that it was her last wish to play her favorite song the very on-the-nose, Everything I Own by Bread. While the wistful song fills the air, Bo goes down a memory lane of sorts via all the stuff around the house. There's tons of pictures of him when younger, yet strangely amongst the collection is one distinctly from earlier in the movie. Another wall fills us in on the meteoric rise of Mona's company. The journey began in 1970, and we see ads featuring Bo as a kid for things like ADHD or allergy relief medication. There's another ad for the delightful, bountiful pastor's meals, featuring a family, and that's definitely young Elaine there. As he gets older, the products advertised reflect this for things like pimple cream and antidepressant meds. His mom also dabbles in real estate, seeing a poster advertising Bo's exact apartment building, with the erectus ejectus downstairs and everything. It's specifically touted as a rehab center for people that have abused their pharmaceutical medications. I did wonder about that. There do seem to be a lot of pills flying around in this world, no doubt most of them from Mona's company. Maybe that's why Bo's brain is so scrambled. lifetime of too many drugs from his mom though he is also actually pictured on the poster and it looks like he works for the building rather than being a patient so to speak there's several graphs charting the insane year-over-year growth of the company and it really feels that it is all-encompassing product-wise at this point finally there's a mosaic of Mona comprised of all of her employees he leans in for a closer look spotting Elaine and Roger amongst the group. This making it almost seem like this entire crazy journey was somehow orchestrated by Mona, or rather that's how Beau feels about his mother's grasp on his life. He plops down on the couch for a rest and time skips to later in the evening. He's awoken to a woman's voice from upstairs and you already know it's Elaine. She excuses that she thought the funeral was at 8 p.m. and as she rambles, he just stands there in awe at seeing her again. She heads outside to wait for her Uber and he surprisingly doesn't let the moment slip away. He follows after croaking, Elaine, it's me Bo." It takes her a minute to, take in his older appearance but familiarity takes over. She can't believe it's him but of course it's his mom and everything. She offers her condolences and learned that she did work with his mother until last week at least. He smiles slightly and says that he waited for her and Beau reminds her I even have it in writing. Suddenly after this Elaine kind of changes completely acting almost exactly like Bo would want her to in a fantasy sort of situation. I wanted you to Elaine says and calls him baby 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 in an almost mothering way. She caresses his shoulders asking if he wants to go inside you want me to leave? Feeling the pressure to make a move and remembering what happened last time, he goes to give her a peck. They head right for the bedroom, or as Elaine dubs it, the Dragon's Lair. Further kind of blurring the line with Elaine and Mona, she goes right for Mona's stuff and even puts on some of her perfume. She instructs Beau to head to the bathroom to get undressed and she'll be ready when he's out. He stares lifelessly at himself for a few moments in the mirror and obviously overcome with fear, he returns to bed fully clothed. She sends him away again and he rushes back in only in his skivvies. He apologizes for the 10 millionth time and she gives him a kiss. She can feel that he's tense and he admits that it's been a long time. She sets the mood with the hilarious choice of Always Be My Baby by Mariah Carey and gets an MW branded Johnny hat in place. They get down to business and Bo soon has trouble keeping the wolves at the door. He starts screaming for her to stop but it's too late and the floodgates spring open. Bo coughs and sputters muttering oh my god in relief. He didn't die! As he says he thought that he would die his entire life. Well that's a relief I'm sure. Elaine wants to keep going and soon lets out some serious moans. Thank you, thank you, he chants emotionally, and Elaine has suddenly died right on top of him, just like his dad supposedly did, and her appearance, at least in the eyes, resembles Tony's demise. He pushes her off and shields his eyes in horror from the sight. Shockingly, there's another voice heard in the room, that of his mother's, scowling for him to, oh, keep going as if she's not even here. Wait, what? She's alive? She immediately gives him shit for taking so long to get here, and then to defile his supposedly dead mother's bedroom. But Beau interjects that he knew she wasn't dead. He recognized the birth marks on the body as belonging to their longtime maid Martha. He can't believe that she would do that to Martha, but it's no surprise that she volunteered thanks to a fat offer of cash. So much that her entire family never has to work again. She says it was worth every penny because now she knows everything. She further pokes at Bo, calling his story of the stolen keys a flagrant lie. She can't help but see through his blatant lies and falsehoods. She rattles off some other supposedly heinous examples of her boy's behavior, including gifting her the same CD two years in a row, which he also gave to his high school counselor, the nerve. Or how about the time he bought her a kitchen set a week after she publicly swore off cooking? and you're like, uh, what? Those aren't exactly the worst crimes in the world. She doubles down on her disdain for him. Even when he was a baby, he rejected her and refused to breastfeed. She becomes more unhinged, accusing him of never intending to make his flight in the first place. The real surprise would have been him actually showing up. Beau shambles down the stairs and mom asks, where he's going, you gonna walk away? He tries for the door, but it's locked and she continues her attack. You're always acting like such a dutiful little boy, as if throwing her off of his scent. His whole life he was concerned with making sure and let it all resolve itself in the absence of himself. He makes others do things for him which he believes somehow makes him innocent. She then turns her anger on her own mother, which gives us insight into Mona's own maternal instincts. Her mother wouldn't even touch her, not even to stamp her out if she was on fire. She was unable to earn her love no matter how much she tried. Her real self was over time smothered until it was no more. Her mother blamed her for everything that her mother did to her. Well, that sounds exactly like Bo's relationship with Mona. He is no longer himself anymore because he has spent his whole life trying to please his impossible mom. Her intention with Bo was to give him all the love that she had, but that didn't turn out exactly how she intended. She scowls that when people ask how Bo is doing, your guess is as good as mine, but this isn't true, and she turns on a recording from one of his therapy sessions. Ah. Pretty sure that's legal. whatever. In the recording, Bo details the difficulties he faced when growing up and coming into his own. Mona would take any of those changes personally and would make her sad or mad. She'd feel bad about whatever it was until Bo stopped doing it. Again, literally sounds like the exact same setup with her mom. She took his autonomy as a betrayal. In the recording, he gives an example that she was him with love, but if he didn't give it back the exact same way, Mona would take it as him trying to hurt her. The love was conditional, the therapist asked. Yes, Bo agrees. Dr. Friel joins the fun and Mona asks him to put on her favorite session. It's regarding the ubiquitous dream which Bo has been having since he was little. He even recognizes that there was another more braver version of himself. The other Bo is able to ask about his father while Arbo was too afraid. So she sent him away, locking upstairs, and never talking about him again. Freel is curious. What does he want to know about his father? The truth, Bo shouts now, while in the session he is not so certain. He says he even met his dad. So why did she lie to him? You want the truth now? Yes. Well then follow me, she orders. She got guides him up the stairs that lead to the attic but was taken aback. The attic? But no one is allowed up there. Mona alleges that she kept some things from him for his own protection. That's why she kept all this from him. Bo scales the stairs into the attic. Mona calling after she'll be right behind him. This is like my dream he mumbles exactly like my dream. Mom shouts angrily that wasn't a dream you stupid idiot. It was a memory and slammed the door on him. He finds a flashlight and discovers that other version of himself still trapped in the attic now weak and shakily holding out a food bowl. A strange voice says his name. My beautiful baby boy, don't be afraid, it says. In the uh, most bizarre moment of the movie, an alarm is triggered revealing the voice is coming from a giant penis monster, yep talking giant penis monster. It's as ridiculous as it sounds, and of course I can't show you on YouTube because a penis will rot your brain. Jeeves makes a triumphant return, even though he would definitely be dead after what happened earlier. He crashes through the window and launches a knife at Bo, comically boinking off his head. He opens fire on the penis monster and proceeds to stab the absolute hell out of it. The monster strikes back with its pointy talons, impaling one right through Jeeves' skull. Bo loses it, falling back and tumbling down the stairs. Dr. Friel grabs him by the sleeve, and Mona reminds him she didn't want him- To see that! You see why I lied now? That was your father! Huh? To me, I still believe that the attic represents repressed aspects of Bo's mind, such as the braver version of himself, and of course the story he was told regarding his father. It does make sense that it would be a giant dick because of how he died, also resulting in the subsequent fear for Bo for his entire life, living in fear of what happens if he has that release. So yeah, giant penis, dude. And in Bo's case, fear wins again. He apologizes about being a bad son. He'll do anything to make it up to you and even kisses at her feet. She sneers that he's a selfish little boy. Do you have any idea what I went through to bring you into this world? Now you cry? Now you need a mother? She squeezed every ounce of her love out and given it to him her whole life. He took and took until she squeezed herself empty. And what did she get back? Insults and empty promises. Like promising not to hurt her. He must have promised that a hundred times, but his promises are shit. Now she only feels grief and hatred. Yes, she actually hates her son at this point. Woo, wee! Toxic enough for you there? After that onslaught, Bo has finally reached his limits, going for his mom's throat. He catches himself and snaps out of it. Mommy, he gasps, can you breathe? And of course, apologizes a ton of times. She staggers through the room, croaks hoarsely, grabs at her chest, and falls right into a terrarium face down. Bo is beside himself and simply takes his leave running through the grounds with his mouth agape and clearly shell-shocked. He happens upon a body of water along with a convenient motorboat waiting there for him. He gets the engine going and putters out into the seemingly never-ending darkness of water. He goes further and further from the shore, coming across a strange craggy island. He goes right through the long cave interior and comes out to more stars twinkling in the sky on the other side. This mysterious voyage comes to an unceremonious end when the engine starts to sputter and he is stopped in place. loud switch is activated, revealing he has found himself in a massive, strange kind of coliseum, even including an audience. A mechanical whirr is heard overhead and a massive metal cage is lowered down. As someone starts rattling off his personal details and he sees his mom with no real injuries, along with her attorney, we come to understand that Beau has found himself in a full-blown kangaroo court. Essentially, he is going to be found guilty no matter what and he has no real chance to defend himself. Cohen lays out the case here. They are here to assess the extent of the subject's guilt, not Now, whether he's guilty or not, through magically obtained footage, a few incidents from over the years are mentioned, none of which are particularly damning I have to say. They praise him for stopping to feed the ducks or for feeding his therapist fish, but when it comes to a human beggar that he encountered that very same night, he is much less compassionate. The footage shown is actually that tattooed dude chasing him like a maniac, so that doesn't really apply, it's not like a normal beggar or something. He at least has someone on his side, hearing a faint voice shout, OBJECTION! Violent street crime is everywhere on the news, and they were specifically told to to avoid strangers. None of that matters in this court, though. Get your facts out of here, buddy. They continue with an incident when he was nine years old, Cohen accusing him of having a functioning conscience, which he chooses to ignore. He went shopping with his mom one day, and they got separated. Mona worried that she lost him. She panicked, searching for the boy, and sees Bo hiding behind a column upstairs. His 1-800 defense attorney shouts after that he does appear genuinely lost, and perhaps upon seeing his mother was worried about potential punishment. In her distraught state, she fell down and suffered some minor injuries, but but still didn't intervene. He was afraid, the attorney blurts out. Then another incident when he was 15, and he was in the rare case of hanging out with other boys. Hoping to impress them, he invited them into his mom's wardrobe where they went through her dirty laundry and even stole some of her undergarments. Oh God, they pressured me, Bo groans at the scene, and his attorney agrees. Well, no more help from that guy as some goons come out of nowhere and toss the dude over the side and he smashes into some rocks. Cohen still isn't done, bringing up that moment at Rogers where he posed the question of when to leave. He damns him for further postponing an already delayed trip and asserts that it was due to the subject being panicked at the idea of returning home. Bo defends himself that he just didn't want to put Roger out. He had the surgeries and everything. And if we believe the mosaic, he was working for Mona as well anyway. Bo was adamant. He stayed with his mom's coffin and cried for hours when he did get home. He obviously cares. The next grievous transgression was gifting Penelope, or as he refers to her, that pregnant slut, the statue intended for his mother. She offered to return turn it to him and he insisted that she keep it. Now we didn't actually see anything like that happen either. She just bolted when Jeeves showed up. So again, it's not even based on any kind of facts whatsoever. Mom is gripping at the metal railing so hard that she snaps it right off. Then there's an ominous flurry of trumpets and a pounding drum. He gets to his feet but finds his legs stuck echoing hero Bo's previous plight. Bo sobs for his mommy to help and when she stays silent, turns to the others. Someone out there, please help. The engine is set ablaze and he looks teary-eyed up to Mona. He then oddly calms down as though accepting his fate. The boat rattles, and Bo takes a deep breath. The dinghy violently capsizes, just like with the kid in the toy boat at the beginning. After it topples over, there's a massive geyser of water that erupts, and this is one thing that Aster has commented on, and it is supposed to represent an ejaculation. Nah, thanks. Thanks for the deets there, Ari. It honestly does come in handy when we're trying to put the bigger picture together. One sec. There's bubbling and sloshing from the boat that soon ceases. We then hear Mona screaming, no, my baby, no! Which we heard all the way back when he was born. Makes sense to hear that on the other end of his life as well, the audience chatters for a few moments before they slowly start to file out of their seats until there's no one left. Right, so how do we piece together the past three hours of madness? Well, as I mentioned, I believe that it is a more metaphorical journey of Bo experiencing all those various elements of life. I don't think what we see happen directly, but it also feels like there is some element of reality there. This is where the perspective comes in as we are experiencing everything from Bo's perspective. It all harkens back to that one definite fantasy moment when his door is kicked in. you fear the worst, and it feels real, even if in reality it is unlikely. To me, the entire world is presented with this same POV. It's through the lens of Bo's eyes, reality but cranked up to 11, representing all those anxieties of his actually being real. Again, his reality. As the journey goes on and things become more surreal and dreamlike, it's almost as though his reality is taking further control in a sense, leading to more impossible and crazy things occurring. Just keeps ramping up, like we're seeing all these swirling memories and thoughts and fantasies going through Bo's mind. So of course, his anxieties and guilt regarding his mother would manifest in this supreme conspiracy test thing with everyone he encounters in his entire journey involved in some way. Of course, that's how overbearing he feels about his mother's presence. It's no surprise that she would go to such great lengths to have an excuse to tear him apart for simply failing her once again. This seems indicative of their entire relationship. Even if everything we see isn't exactly reality, it does feel like it must be based on reality in some way. We can tell from that very first phone conversation how Mona has kind of weaponized guilt against Bo. He is desperate still to please her, asking in confusion what she wants. She more or less uses this undying devotion against him, the power of guilt being a huge motivator in every step of Bo's existence. Mona honestly kind of ruined her son, whether intentional or not. It really all kicked into gear with that story about his dad's death. This instilled a deep fear into Bo, and most likely made him withdrawn from relationships as especially in relation to women, it's almost a way to control Beau as well, and make it so that Mona can never be replaced in a sense. It's also worth noting that when Mona is revealed to be alive and during her whole dressing down, there is never even a mention of the sex thing. She literally just watched him do the act, and it was such a huge thing in his life. This makes it appear that she might have made the whole thing up. It's really like she's been grinding him down starting at an early age, convincing him that taking any kind of control of his own life would more or less be a betrayal of her. he retreated further and further into himself until he became the bundle of nerves and guilt we see in his adult life. It's really Mona's fault that he can't do things for himself. She created that problem in the first place. And now she's upset that her son is too scared of the world to find his way through it on his own. She has neutered him in more than one way. Tying us back to the ending, Mona constantly berates her son for innocuous, in my opinion, grievances. This has been going on his whole life, blaming him for things that he either didn't intend to do, and in some cases didn't even do anything at all. That continues on with the trial finally wanting to take him to task officially for all of his years of wrongdoing. The ending shows us that after being told how bad he is so many times Bo has convinced himself that he is guilty. Ultimately he chooses to believe what his mother has beaten into his head his whole life. He is guilty of everything that he's been accused of. He deserves his fate in the end. And it's only in his death that he finally gets that moment of relief that he has been unable to attain. That brings us to the conclusion of this in-depth explained video for Bo's. Afraid. I feel like there's still a ton of stuff to explore that I wasn't able to cover, so let me know if you'd like to see a follow-up vid. And don't forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows. You'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at FoundFlix. What did you think of Boa's Afraid and its ending? What's your interpretation of the story? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching, FoundFlix. See you next time.